So today we begin our series, Hashtag Blessed. And it only takes a moment, if you're on social media, to go to Instagram, and if you type in hashtag blessed, there's over 109 million pictures with the hashtag attached to it. There's things from babies, beers, jobs, bodies, bridges, Bible quotes, to a whole host of other things that have hashtag blessed attached to them. It seems like there's countless definitions of what it means to be a blessed life. And I wonder how each one of us individually would define what it means to be blessed. I guarantee you, though, that if I ask each and every one of you, do you want to have a blessed life, 100% of you would say, yes, of course, I'd like to have a blessed life. Now, behind there is a few more questions, because another question is, what does a blessed life look like? And an even deeper question is, what does a life blessed by God look like? I know for me, right away, when I think about blessed, because some of my personal experience and maybe what I've watched of too many televangelists, it can seem like that my comfort, health, and prosperity are what God is all about. That a blessed life is a pain-free perfect existence with a happily ever after at the end of every single story. But is that truly what a blessed life looks like and how Jesus defined blessing? So over the next five weeks, we're going to take a look at this idea of what does it mean to be blessed according to the Beatitudes. Now the Beatitudes are part of Jesus's most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in the Gospel of Matthew, which on the Bible timeline is in the Gospel area. There's four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and that's right at the beginning of the New Testament. These four Gospels tell the stories, teachings, miracles, and life of Jesus. And the Beatitudes are part of this most famous sermon in Matthew 5 to 7. Now the word Beatitude simply comes from the Latin word beatus, which means blessed or blessed. And this sermon begins with these eight or nine statements that say blessed is this. And so that's where we're, what we're going to take a look at. And what we'll discover today is two things. Blessed are the bankrupt and broken. Blessed are the bankrupt and broken. But before we get into that, I want to sort of frame out the whole series with five key points as we look at this in in the larger context. First, God wants to bless you. God wants to bless you. For all of you who are burnt out on performance-orientated religion, who believe that God is a divine killjoy, who is just waiting to send the thunder and lightning and destroy your life, that God is more about destruction than life, Right away, Jesus breaks that stereotype and says, no, God wants to bless you. Second, blessing can be defined as true happiness. As true happiness. Now, as I wrestled with preparing for this whole series, I was really digging into this word blessed. And when you take it back to the original language, that word blessed can be translated as happiness. Some translations actually use the word happy. Happy are those. Unfortunately, the word happy in our culture and in English loses some of its meaning. 
Because we look at happiness as a big smile on your face or a carefree attitude or something that just changes with the weather. But to be blessed, truly blessed, truly happy is a much greater, deeper form of happiness. It's the difference between candy and a good, healthy meal. Candy is delicious. I love candy. I love sugar. And I found out as my parents were here that sugar addiction runs in my family. (coughs) But as I look at, you can eat tons of sugar and you'll feel good for a moment and maybe get that rush, but really it won't satisfy and provide good nutrition for your life. Now, if you eat a well-balanced diet and good food, you will truly be healthy. And that's the difference between kind of how our culture defines happiness and true happiness. True happiness is found in what we're going to learn about. So blessing can be defined as true happiness. Third, the Beatitudes are meant to be taken together with the whole Sermon on the Mount in mind. These nine statements are not independent of one another, and they also aren't independent of the greater Sermon on the Mount. So we need to see how they build on one another and progress with one another. These aren't like separate pieces that Jesus just threw together. This is a whole connected. I personally love to build puzzles. Any puzzle builders in here? One of the most annoying things with building a puzzle is when you get to the end and there is a piece missing. Yes. When you don't have the whole picture, when there's one missing. I realized the other day, I, I found a puzzle on our shelf and on the cover it said this, this puzzle is meaning missing pieces. I need to go home and throw that puzzle away. Because you're just asking to be disappointed at the end as you're not functioning in the whole. But, but all of these beatitudes are meant to be taken together within the Sermon of the Mount, which forms the whole picture of what Jesus is talking about here. And fourth, you need God to live a blessed life. Or to frame it in the negative, you can't do what Jesus is telling you to do in this section of Scripture. You can't do it on your own. There's no possible way. The standard is too high and it's too impossible. Virginia M. Owens was an English teacher at Texas A&M University. And she assigned her students an essay to write on the Sermon on the Mount. So that includes the Beatitudes. As they wrote this and finished it, a few of her students came back with these comments. I did not like the essay Sermon Sermon on the Mount. It was hard to read and made me feel like I had to be perfect and no one is. Another one wrote this. The things asked in the sermon are absurd. To look at a woman is adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhumane statement that I've ever heard. And what her students were recognizing who were unfamiliar with this passage was that the standard set in the Sermon on the Mount is unachievable. It's being set too high, and it's even painful if you read it. You can't do it without God. I remember going to this Christian conference growing up and being shown this image of an umbrella, and it was called the Umbrella of God's Blessing. 
And they said, if you keep your life under there, if you do the right things and stay under the shelter of God's umbrella, then he has to bless you. And I love that idea because it allowed me to control how and when God blessed me. As long as I behaved good enough and did the right things, I would receive the blessing of God. Where that breaks down is that God's blessing is completely, utterly dependent on you and your performance. That if you just do the right things and stay under this umbrella, then God has to bless you. But the reality is we need God to live a hashtag blessed life. And fifth, to finish the longest introduction ever, God's blessing comes in many different packages. God's blessing comes in many different packages. Like I mentioned, often our default is to think that God's blessing is all about making us comfortable and prosperous. Hashtag blessed with a new car. Hashtag blessed with a dream vacation. Hashtag blessed with a perfect family. Hashtag blessed with a perfect body. And we look at God's blessings as all about our comfort and our material prosperity. Think about this. Can God's blessing come with a job and a promotion? Yes. Yes, it can. But can God's blessings come in a job loss and a demotion? Yes. Is it possible to be blessed and broke? Blessed and ugly? Blessed and sick? Is it possible to be blessed and single? Blessed and divorced? Is it possible to be blessed and at the same time crying? Yes. Why? Because God's blessings comes in different packages. So remember, as we jump into this larger series, God wants to bless you. Blessing can be defined as true happiness. These beatitudes are meant to be taken together in light of the whole Sermon on the Mount. You need God to live a hashtag blessed life. And God's blessings comes in different packages. So let's tackle the first two Beatitudes here, one at a time. Matthew 5, 3 states, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. In a parallel passage in the book of Luke, verse 6, verse 20, it states, God blesses those who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. In Luke, that second verse, clearly Jesus is talking about people who are material poor, that God's blessing is upon them. That is one reason why we partner up with organizations like Montgomery County Coalition for the Homeless. Actually, later this week, a few of us will be going to their yearly gala in support of what they're doing around the county because we believe God cares for the material poor and actually God has a special blessing for them. Now, in Matthew, it is not talking about financial prosperity or financial poverty. It is talking about the poor in spirit, the spiritually bankrupt. He's not talking about people's bank accounts, but their soul accounts. That within each one of us, we are in desperate need of God. The doorway into the kingdom of God is through a recognition that you are not good enough and you will never be good enough to come to God. No one is perfect. 
No one has it all figured out. For the intellectually brilliant or the simple-minded, both enter the kingdom of God in the same way. The rich and poor, those who've lived good, clean lives, and those who've blown through every single stop sign on the way to wild living, all of them enter the kingdom of God in the same way. If you've brilliantly succeeded or failed in a blaze of glory, you still enter the kingdom of God in the same way. And we enter when we recognize God blesses those who are spiritually bankrupt and desperate need of God. Imagine looking in your bank account and seeing all zeros. Maybe you did that this morning And if this was because of poor financial management, I'd encourage you to sort out Dave Ramsey's (laughs) Financial Peace University. But imagine, because of no cause of your own, that you go to your bank account, all your investments, every penny that you've saved, gone. Zeros. Bankrupt. What would be the feeling going on in your heart and your soul if everything you had earned was completely gone? You'd probably have some feelings of panic, desperation, trying to figure out what happened and what I need to do. But at some point, you will come to a position that you'll recognize that you need outside help to figure out what just happened to all your finances. You might need to go get a lawyer or police involved or something else. But at some point you're going to say, I can't fix this on my own. And when we come to God, each one of us comes spiritually bankrupt with nothing credited to our cult, to our account. And what does God do with a spiritual bankrupt person? He gives them the kingdom of God. That is a kingdom that starts now and lasts forever that we get to be part of his kingdom here on earth, but also we look forward to a day when we'll be fully alive in the presence of God in the most beautiful place ever with utter perfection, health, and what we consider unimaginable wealth. A blessed life, a true, a life filled with true happiness recognizes our own spiritual bankruptcy. Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 and 14. I have 6 and 7 up there, but it's 13 and 14. States, you were dead because of your sins and because your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. Paul is literally saying here, you are dead. You were dead. You were spiritually bankrupt. There was nothing you could do. But then Jesus came and breathed life into you and credited your spiritual account with his riches. But first it takes a recognition of our spiritual bankruptcy. God blesses those who are spiritually bankrupt. We then read on in verse 4, the second beatitude. God blesses those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In a parallel passage, 
In Luke 6.21, it states, God blesses those who weep, for in due time you will laugh. These are clearly talking about two different things, although they're parallel passages. And I'll take the one in Luke first. And what Jesus is saying in Luke is this. True happiness is found when we grieve our losses. That word for mourning or weeping in Luke means to cry loudly, to wail in grief. Have you ever watched somebody wail in grief? Or have you yourself wailed in grief? I've been on both sides of that. And you watch the depth of pain and hurt. And when we experience loss, it is healthy to mourn and grieve our losses. There are so many different losses that we suffer in life. It might be the loss of a loved one, loss of health, loss of dreams, loss of innocence, loss of trust. And when we lose things, we need to grieve our losses. Three days after one of my children was born, Nami and I found out that there were significant health issues that would require surgery and monitoring for the rest of this child's life. Only three days earlier, we were holding a perfect child, but now life seemed broken, confusing, and unstable. As I look back, I gave my... I gave myself time to mourn and grieve. Not the loss of a child. We still have that child. But the loss of what I thought life would look like. And how life would look like with this child. People around me found this hard. That some you could get that feeling when you came and you were not okay and you were still grieving those losses That it was almost like, can't you just get over that and move on? (laughs) And the reality is, no. And I wanted to make sure that I dealt with grief in a good way. I wasn't going to stuff it, ignore it, but I was going to embrace it and mourn what I lost. And in this process, I felt God's blessing. And over time... True happiness returned, not a false happiness. And there's a way to grieve well that addresses loss in your life. What about you? What are, what are some of the losses that you've experienced? Take a moment to think about it or maybe even write it down. What is the pain that you've experienced and have you grieved over those losses? Now, I'm not telling you that you have to mourn loudly and wail out loud. Maybe you're not emotional in those ways or in that depth, but there's still a good way to make sure that you process and grieve your losses. And if you grieve now, according to to Luke, later you will be truly happy. You will laugh again. And I believe if we grieve well, there will be days filled with laughter. But if we don't grieve well, it makes laughter all that much harder in the future. Those two work together in some very unique ways. We need to grieve well. 
And we need to grieve our losses. Now in Matthew, this isn't talking about grieving our losses. This is talking about blessing and true happiness is found when we grieve over our sin. It says, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. And this points towards being broken over our own sinful condition. Now, how do we define sin? Well, sin is simply putting anything above God. It could be your plans, your desires, other people, things, possessions. But anything we put above God becomes sinful. Yes, there are many specific ways to sin. And if you want to discover some of those, just read the whole Sermon on the Mount and it will give you a clear picture of how you are sinning up all over the place. Because it starts out and it says, if you've broken one point of the law, you've shattered it all. If you get angry with somebody, it's the same as murdering them. We don't like to hear that. We're like, no, not really, Jesus. That's just hyperbole. He's like, no, in my eyes, this is how it looks. You look at a man wrong or a woman wrong with lust in your eyes and you've already went the whole road and committed adultery with that person. And that's just the beginning. You can keep going on and see how we fall so short of God's standard of perfection. And we are sinful people. You can begin to feel the weight of it. And all of us need to recognize our desperate need for God. That we are broken over our own sinful condition. How broken are you over your own sin? How bad do you really think it is? I know I can fool myself and think that I'm okay. It's not a big deal. There's other worse sinners than Mark Trinkle. But I can tell you that when I'm honest, and there have been times where I've grieved over my sin, grieved over my tendencies to walk away from God, grieved over the things I've said and done and seen or acted, how I've treated other people and how I've knownly dishonored God. There have been times where that has grieved my soul. And to be honest, there's been other times that I've just kind of ignored those things that I've done things or said things or seen things and just kind of ignored it and said, well, whatever, not a big deal. And the interesting thing is that in my mind, and Paul actually talks about this in, in Romans, in my mind, I know the life that God will bless. And it's a life of brokenness and recognizing my need for him. But then I live in a different way. And then I wonder why I become more miserable and why I'm not happy. And in those moments of misery, in my own sinful condition, is where Jesus comes along and goes, blessed are the broken who recognize they're broken with their sin. And he reaches in and as we mourn over our own sinful condition, he begins to give us true happiness, true life. And he begins to restore joy in life to your light. In the Old Testament, there's a king named David who came up out of the ranks as a shepherd boy to becoming king. His rise was spectacular and he was a man of God. But at the height of his power, 
he made premeditated decisions to sin against God. One year when his army went out to war in spring, when all the kings would go with their armies, David stayed home. He wasn't where he was supposed to be. And as he walked the roof of his palace, he saw a beautiful naked woman named Bathsheba bathing. And he asked the servants, who is this woman I see? And he was told, this is Bathsheba, the wife of one of your mighty men, Uriah. One of your inner circle that you're looking at right now. And he said, go get her and bring her to me. He knew who this woman was. Knew that she was a married woman to one of his friends. So his servants brought her and David slept with her and she became pregnant. When he found out that she was pregnant, he tries to cover up his sin and bury that. So he invites Uriah to come back from the battle lines and he comes back to the city and he tries to get Uriah to go home to sleep with his wife. But Uriah said, I cannot go home and sleep with my wife while the armies of Israel are out fighting. So he slept on the streets with the other men. So David upped his game and said, well, if I get him drunk, then he'll go home. It's been a long time. Gets him drunk. Still wouldn't go home. He was a man of integrity. And so David went to, it was like plan C or who knows how many plans David was at by now. And he decides to send orders back in the hand of Uriah to to the ruler or to the um, the head of the Israelite army to have Uriah killed in battle. And that's what happens. Uriah is assassinated in battle. And in the midst of this, there's nothing that talks about David being aware that anything is wrong or that he's stepping out from God's plans or purposes. Until the prophet Nathan comes to him one day and tells him this eloquent story, which at the end, David is confronted with the gravity of his own sinful condition. And in that brokenness, in that spiritual bankruptcy, he pens two psalms, and this is one of the psalms that he pens in Psalm 32. And we could take the word joy and potentially replace it with blessing or true happiness. And you can see the brokenness and the bankruptcy in here, but then God's blessing through that. Oh, what joy for those whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night, your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. Finally, I confessed all my sins to you and stopped trying to hide my guilt. I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord. And you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. David, when he finally got brutally honest, about his own spiritual condition, that he was bankrupt and broken and in desperate need of God, God forgives him and returns joy to him. Often we think if we go to God with our brokenness and our sin, that God's gonna just heap more guilt on us and shame on us. But ultimately it says, God sets you free. 
He takes away that guilt. He takes away that pain. He takes away that shame and sets you free. Now here's a prayer that I penned, kind of like David's, that we can pray. And I'll say it first. And then if you want to repeat it with me afterwards, I just want to give you a moment to reflect on this before we say it. God, I am spiritually bankrupt and recognize my desperate need for you. I'm broken over my sin and I ask for your forgiveness. Restore joy, blessing, and true happiness to my life. Amen. So let's say that. If you want to say it with me, feel free, no pressure. But I believe it's a great prayer. God, I am spiritually bankrupt and recognize my desperate need for you. I'm broken over my sin and ask for your forgiveness. Restore joy, blessing, and true happiness to my life. Amen. A blessed life is a bankrupt and broken life. Let's pray. God, may we experience your blessing as we recognize our own desperate need for you, that we are spiritual bankrupt and we mourn and are broken over our own sinful condition. And as we wrestle with that and recognize that, God, we ask that you'd restore joy, true happiness to our lives, that you would set us free from the chains of sin that easily can bind us and destroy us and help us to embrace a blessed life, a bankrupt and broken life. In Jesus' name, amen.